When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Miller Report with Suzanne Miller on the Red Apple Podcast Network. And now, here's Suzanne Miller. Welcome to the Miller Report. I'm Suzanne Miller, founder of Empire State Properties. I think everyone's going to enjoy today's guest. So many people that I know want to be architects or designers. Everybody thinks they're one, right? Everybody thinks they're a designer or an architect. We all have it in us. I mean, at least I think I do. Today we have with us a talented, remarkable guest. Not only is he a famous architect, he is a landlord himself and his list of clients are like famous. He works for the Related Group, Tishman Spire, Heinz, and so many more. Thank you, Richard Granoff, for coming on The Miller Report. I have so many questions to ask you. I hope we have enough time. So I want to just start with like a really big issue that I've been reading about lately. You know, our electrical grids, that I hear that they're outdated and overburdened. That's a very big issue. But there's a big push to turn all our natural gas into electric. I don't know if you heard, but in San Francisco, they want to change all the residential heaters and furnaces into electric. Is that like even feasible? What's your thought on that? Well, uh, good morning, Suzanne. This is a hot topic in uh, the design world these days. Absolutely, I believe that going all electric uh, is something that we need to do as a society and phasing out fossil fuels, uh, not to get into politics. Careful, uh, this is ABC. Uh, emissions <laughs> control uh, is, is, is a big issue. The gas issue is not only about fossil fuels, it's also about caustic vibes and scents in an apartment. So if you have a, a, a gas burner in your apartment, it's giving off no- noxious fumes. So that, that's one of the reasons that, that there's a, a push towards phasing out gas. From a developer architect standpoint, it's more efficient to build uh, buildings without gas because you don't have to build the infrastructure for gas. And there's also the safety issue, could be a safety issue with gas. So uh, going all electric is also better for uh, developers because it's less upfront. What do you think about all these like scooters that are blowing up and cars that are blowing up? I mean, there's some validity to this, no? Well, you know, depends who you talk to. And if you look at the stats, gasoline engines definitely blow up a lot more than any other types of uh, battery powered engines. I'm, I'm an EV guy. I've, I've driven a Tesla for 10 years. I just got a Rivian. So obviously I'm pro EV. <laughs> but what do you think about the cost savings? As a developer, I love the cost savings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why gas- you're really doing it is for the money. It's one of the reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so let's move on to something that is in the news all the time right now. And this is keeps me up at night. And that's the vacancies in New York, particularly in the commercial buildings. And I talk about this like on all the shows because it's a really big issue. Like if the banks take back these residential office, these these office buildings, what, what are we going to do? We're going to be, it's going to, it's going to kill the city even further. So I know you've been involved in transforming a lot of these office buildings. You said you have some projects going on right now. Mm-hmm. Tell us, what, you think it's feasible? Is this going to save us? What's your thoughts on this? Well, uh, 
we I think it's common knowledge that there's going to be a lot of vacant office buildings. The demand is down. You know, the supply is static. The B and C buildings, especially. The, I think the A buildings are safe. There's, New York's always going to be a center of commerce. There's always going to be a demand. So the obvious move, which is starting to happen, is to convert office buildings to residential, where, whereas we know there's a huge demand for apartments at, at every spectrum, the affordable end, at the you know moderate end, and at the, at, at the luxury part of the market. I'm going to say about 30% on average of the office buildings out there are candidates to convert. It starts with the geometry of a building. If a building is, is a full city block and it's really deep, uh, it's not going to be a, a strong candidate geometrically uh, to convert. If it's a, a longer, narrower building, typically the older buildings are, are more suited, um, pre-World War II, are more suited for residential. You needed natural light right. and uh, an air. So the older buildings convert e- easier. Um, they also have uh, individual windows which are generally operable as opposed to a new a glass office building from the 60s or 70s has a curtain wall that without operable windows. And obviously you need operable windows. All the projects I've worked on to convert have been very cost feasible. If it costs $500 a square foot to build a new apartment building, it could cost $300 a square foot to renovate an older one. So the cost of, of building it is less. The demand is there. And you know, you're looking at residential rents on a per square foot basis that are higher than, than, than office rents. How many apartments do you get out of these buildings? They're generally, uh, if it's the right building, they're generally efficient to convert. So it's no different than than designing a new building if the building's a candidate. So the efficiency is really not an issue. Uh, you know, office buildings typically have, you know, multiple means of egress. Actually, office buildings have too many elevators. So when you convert an office building to residential, usually you can lose uh, some elevators. What about the politics? Certainly in a city like New York, you know, most commercial areas, you can build r- residential uh, as of right. Um, um, other places, mo- most towns and cities are happy to see empty office buildings converted to residential. It's just good for the city to bring people living downtown as opposed to an empty office building, right? So I, I don't, there really isn't much politics per se, um, or really a lot of zoning issues to convert. Going the other way, if I say I want to convert, you know, residential to office, then, mm-hmm. you know, that, that could be uh, controversial. But, and then if we talk about affordable, you know, affordable housing, that's a huge demand for that. And if you can build for less, if you can renovate a building into an apartment building, then and that could lend itself more towards affordability because there's less cost in in doing the project. I think that's a really hot topic. So let's talk about affordable. What are you doing and where, where do you see about that? So we're doing a huge amount of affordable housing, especially for, for related. We're working a lot for related affordable. They own 60,000, 80,000 units of affordable housing around the country, and we're always renovating buildings for them. You know, it's, it's easier to get these projects approved because there is a mandate, depending on the locale and the state, to build affordable housing. So generally, there's zoning incentives to build affordable housing. And uh, many of the banks want to or need to finance uh, affordables to check their boxes on their lending. There's many flavors of, of affordable housing. Um, as I said, there's older buildings. Uh, there's millions of units around the country that are older that need refurbishing that are 100% affordable. You know, there's Section 8 housing built in the mostly in the 60s and 70s, I would say. And then what price do they come in around? Well, it's based on average medium uh, income for the, for the locale. So that, that's how, generally, it's how affordable housing works. It's depending on the location, it's geared toward a certain percentage of the population that makes below the average medium income. Can you be. give us like some formula or some example? Because most people don't well, understand. Well, yeah, as, as a landlord, I can tell you, I own um, a number of 7030 buildings, mostly in Connecticut. 
And if the market rent is uh, $4,000 for a one bedroom a month, the affordable unit could be a third of that, could be $1,300 a month. And it's from the same building. And when we build new, we have to uh, match the, we can't segregate the affordable units. They have to be spread throughout the building, same finishes, same size, Mm -hmm. mix, et et cetera. I'm glad I can do it uh, as a developer, as long as the numbers work on on the project. So we get subsidies, we get zoning subsidies. So Mm-hmm. The way it works is that the market rate units subsidize the affordable units. So there's no government funding involved. It's just a zoning incentive that if I buy a piece of land, I can build twice as many apartments on that piece of land. So my cost per unit for land is, is less. I like that. I think it's uh, it's very well needed. Yeah. So let's switch to something fun. I think we all like our kitchens, right? Everybody <laughs> loves a nice kitchen. And as an architect, I also know that you like to cook. If I'm building a home and I'm looking to hire an architect, tell us some of the new fun things that we're doing in these kitchens materials. As an architect, take us through some advice. Sure. Well, in addition to apartments and condos, we also do a lot of luxury single family homes. The kitchen is one of the most important rooms in the house, uh, if not the most important room in the house, From certainly from a marketing and sales of an apartment or a house. You know, once upon a time, a kitchen was a room in the, in the back corner of the house where there was someone else cooking right. <laughs> for us. And that's morphed into, you know, I enjoy cooking and I want to be with my guests and my family when I'm cooking. So the open plan concept came about 20, 30 years ago. And is pretty much standard these days, absolutely, in apartments. I recently built a house, as you know, for myself in Old Greenwich, and uh, it's an open plan house, and I can cook while I entertain and, you know, watch the game and whatever else is happening. And then as far as the technology, induction cooktop, back to the no gas. So... Mm. I actually did an induction cooktop in my kitchen and I have gas in my house. And why is that? Because it's a it's a higher performing appliance from a cooking standpoint. And, and, I, and I was coerced into going induction by my, my kitchen supplier who said, you really have to go induction. So I went and I tested induction cooktops in the A&D building. Uh, I tested Neely and Gagano and I was blown away by, by how fast they boil wow. water and, and, and how well the control is. To me, that's the biggest technological change and, and it's coming fast that every apartment, every house wow. will have an induction cooktop and no more gas. Once people use them and understand them, it's going to be a quick conversion. Tell us some of the new products that you're using. Are they green friendly? Where are they being manufactured? We have this this whole situation with China. So are you finding supply issues? Tell us about the materials you're using to build new homes. So that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, globalization really hit the building industries strong in the last 10 years. Before that, most building products were manufactured in the United States. And then, then we had this wave from China, which in all honesty, I have found in general that products from China are not the best quality. They might, they're usually the cheapest, mm-hmm. but not, not the best quality. But now we have this globalization where we have much of our windows and glazing is coming from Europe, from Germany, from, from Poland. And many of our building products, our stone and our tile are coming from you know, Italy and Turkey and other European countries. So there's, there's really a globalization of of the supply chain for, for building materials. And that's very common. I mean, you know, if, if you walk around a typical new project, you can point to, you know, where things are coming from. Granted, many items are still coming from the U.S. Um, you know, wood especially is a, a 
U.S. product. We have a lot of trees in this country. Canada also, a lot of wood comes from, um, and a lot of technology comes from from Asia. The other thing is uh, composites. There are composite materials that are kind of technological, such as resins, uh, concrete siding products, and we're using less and less wood, especially on the exteriors of homes, and th- those are generally more durable and, le- and more cost-effective. With things being manufactured, you're saying overseas Europe versus China, it must be much more money. Not necessarily. I can tell you that we're using a lot of windows, really beautiful windows from Poland now, and they're more cost effective than than the windows made in the U.S. I would guess because of labor. I don't know that for a fact, but even even including you know shipping products, more more cost effective. And is it solving the green issue? The green issue is a complicated one. There's there's all kinds of things that can be green and not be green in a building, but certainly you know sourcing locally is is considered green. So we, we try to source locally whenever we can, but in general we're open minded to wherever the you know the products are are coming from. Mm-hmm. It's better to use a material that's made from a Composite. What about the delay in getting materials? You're finding that? Well, certainly during COVID, it was a nightmare and that's eased up. The supply chain is is mostly better. I'm not going to say 100%. There are still delays. Some things have shifted um, in what you can get and what you can't get. But I think that's worked itself through the system and we're, we're generally not so supply chain constrained at this point. So. I have been reading that you are a golfer. Now I've learned that there's a whole world of golfers that are architects. There's a whole industry. As a matter of fact, one of my dream projects has always been to do a golf course development. And I recently got, uh, my firm got retained to to design a really cool one. It's in Armonk, New York. It's called the Summit Club. We're going to be building uh, 72 luxury condos right on on the golf course. And it's a country club and there's going to be a clubhouse and uh, amenities and a pool and a lot of goodies going in. So it's a, you know, it's a 200 million dollar project and we're having a lot of fun with it. It's very modern, you know, kind of cutting edge. There's a special golf architect that does yeah, this? Yeah. There are golf course designers that call golf course mm-hmm. architects. Oftentimes they're landscape architects that specialize in golf course architectures. Let's talk about something else. The tech world. We know it's changing in every industry. Artificial intelligence is the buzzword, new technology, new innovations. How do you think this is going to affect your industry? Well, you know, supercomputing has already affected our industry to the point that, you know, when I started uh, almost 40 years ago, you know, we, I was drawing with a pencil. And then, you know, a- after the first five or 10 years, CAD, computer-aided design, came into play. But the early systems were pretty crude, and we really were just drawing plans with the, with the computer. And then, you know, 10 years after that, you know, 3D modeling, uh, this is all because supercomputers got more powerful, mm-hmm. right? So that on a desktop, you've years after that, this is in the, let's say, 2000-ish now, we were began to be able to do 3D modeling. And, and even those were kind of crude and they, the models were slow and you couldn't do that much. And then you get into the, the teens and we really started to have very powerful computers and be able to do you know sophisticated 3D modeling and flybys and walkthroughs. And, and now literally uh, every one of my 34 team members in my office has a, a supercomputer with three screens and everybody in the, in the firm is doing modeling and we we design with 3D computing and we present with you know 3D computing. So the point that, you know, you can't tell the difference wow. between a rendering and a photo of a, of a design that we would do. And I, I think that computers are going to just keep getting more powerful. And now we're starting to get into a little bit of, uh, of AI where we put, you know, goggles on and we could experience, you know, a, a building or a space. Are you in, doing in that in, in your we're, job? We're just, we're just starting to do it now. So you're putting on yeah. goggles, you're going into the... Or, or we're give, more importantly, we're giving the goggles to our clients <laughs> so they 
they can experience their future buildings. And to me, it's very exciting. And it's, that's just going to continue. At the same time, AI, as we all know and, and read about, and is coming fast. And I've always embraced technology, so I'm excited about it. I, and I'm not worried about AI replacing architects because it's what we do is very specific, very creative. And I'm not afraid of, of uh, AI replacing architects. I'm actually more excited about AI helping us do the mundane tasks and the reiterations of, of an idea or, you know, doing various uh, studies that you know, could take a long time, saving us time, I, I guess, which ultimately that's what technology has allowed architects to do. If I, if, if we didn't have computers, if we were working the way we did 50 years ago, I would need a hundred people in my firm instead of the 34. Wow. So it's really just made us much more productive and we spend more time being creative and more time with clients or at construction sites and, and less time drawing windows. You know, I used to draw windows by hand and then, you know, now you have a window symbol and you press a button and it pops it into a You're very forward so. thinking, Rich. Hey, you know. I, I would say our architecture in general is a forward-thinking industry. We're always, you know, what I enjoy about being an architect is I can look to the past. I'm looking out the window right now and I see buildings from the turn of the century, you know, turn of the 1900s century. And then I see, you know, buildings going up that are going to be in the 2020s. So, you know, we look back uh, at history as architects, but we also need to embrace technology and, and be forward-thinking. To me, that's kind of an interesting part of it, like art as I, well. Right? I like that. Well, like architect, that. I guess, is art. <laughs> So you, you mentioned that you do commercial, you do homes, you do kitchens, you do affordable housing, you do landscape, you get involved in golf. What's your favorite? What's the most interesting? Like, what, what do you get excited about when you get a new job? I mean, I, I guess it, well, a lot of variables, but like, what turns you on? I don't like doing the same thing twice. So it, depend, it doesn't really matter what the project type is, but I'm always looking to, to implement new ideas and think out of the box. Um, so for me, something different or a new project type. So we recently got awarded a film studio project in, in, in Hastings uh, on the Hudson, right next to Yonkers. Uh, there's a booming f film studio industry outside of New York City. As we know, there's some Brooklyn is Queens, and now it's coming to Westchester. Um, and then we're building new sound stages. So it's kind of, a, and, and it's a 16 acre master plan and it's water front. So there's a very complicated and a lot of moving parts, all the parts that we do in my in my practice. I am more and more excited about doing my own projects for a number of reasons. Uh, I, obviously, I have creative control over my own development projects. Uh, I'm, I'm the client and, and the architect usually have some partners, but they usually go in the direction I want to go. And so aesthetically, I get to do what I want. And for me, it's much more efficient to build my own designs. So I'm looking forward to growing that. So then what projects do you dread? Well, I'll tell you what I know. I don't like design by committee. <laughs> so I, you know, I like working for um, for real estate developers who who are focused and know what they want and have a clear vision. I like working for homeowners. Uh, it, you know, could be a husband and wife that are aligned and you know want to build a beautiful new home for their family, and it's a joyous thing. I generally turn down commissions for you know uh, country club work or uh, yeah, I've done some schoolwork, but and I'm actually doing one now. But it's it's just frustrating working with a committee where one person wants to build something big and expensive, and the other person says. Oh, we don't have the money on type budget and you just spend a lot of time getting nowhere um, like our government <laughs> yeah well government's a big committee yeah it's tough when it works it's good uh-huh <laughs> i end all my shows by asking this same question and really think about it if you were starting out and somebody came to you for advice what advice would you give a new architect just coming out of school well, I would say, you know, go for it. Go down the path that you, you want to go because there's a lot of avenues. If, if you're an architect, architect getting out of school, there's a lot of avenues. You can say, I want to go build skyscrapers in a big city. I want to build, you know, luxury homes in, in, in the suburbs. I want to do affordable housing. So 
Um, there's a lot, you can go work for a construction company, a developer. So there's a lot of different paths you can go uh, as an architect. I often advise young teenagers. I often get calls from clients and friends saying, my, my son, my daughter wants to be an architect. And I always say the same thing, send them to, send them to my office. In fact, I'm meeting, I'm meeting a, a girl this afternoon at four o'clock, send them to my office and I'll, I'll interview them. And, and I start up saying, why do you want to be an architect? You know, and then, you know, usually it's, I want to build and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I say that, that's great. And, you know, I say, so this is a good, the good thing about the profession is we have a lot of fun, you're building things and it's creative. And I, I would say that job satisfaction is very high overall. But then, you know, I'm, I'm very clear on there's two, there's two big negatives to go down the path of architecture. The first is that architecture school is very hard. It's either a five-year bachelor architecture degree or it's a four plus two. It's a four-year BS in architecture and then two-year master's degree. So it's, it's, it's either five or six years of schooling. And then you need to work uh, for three years. You need to be an intern at, at an architecture firm before then you can sit for a licensing exam, which is every state has a licensing exam, a grueling licensing exam. And that usually takes two years to get through the six parts on that exam. So in essence, it's a 10 year, it's almost like becoming a doctor, right? Wow. It's a 10 year commitment from when you get out of high school to when you can say, I'm an architect. The other piece of bad news is uh, salaries are generally lower than most other professions, lower than engineers, lower than lawyers, lower than bankers, the internet, et cetera. Well, you got to trade the money for the fun, there job satisfaction. I have fun every day, still do. Especially well. when I'm on your show, Suzanne. So. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming on the show, Rich. This has been very, very informative and I appreciate all that you do and keep building homes. Thanks for coming on the Miller Report. Dear listeners, thank you for coming on my podcast. If you like what you're listening to, please download, subscribe and share. Thank you so much. Bye. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to prioritygold.com.